The reading for today comes from Luke 22, 25 through 27. Jesus said to them, Earthly rulers domineer over their people. Those who exercise authority over them are called their benefactors. This must not happen with you. Let the greatest among you be like the youngest. Let the leader among you become the follower. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at a meal or the one who serves it? Is it the one reclining at the table? Yet here I am among you as the one who serves you. Also, Philippians 3, 18-21a. Unfortunately, many go about in a way which shows them to be enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often said this to you before. This time I say it with tears. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame. I am talking about those whose minds are set on the things of this world. But we have our citizenship in heaven. It's from there that we eagerly await the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who will give a new form to this lowly body of ours and remake it according to the pattern of the glorified body. Ian says, God is watching. I'm sure you will regret this someday. Trump 2020! Cindy says, You know what Jesus would do? He would take the food with a sermon about stoping the violence, stopping the criminal activity, and obeying the police when they tell you to stop or are trying to arrest you. If you read the Bible, you would get educated on what Jesus would do. Tracy says, You give Christians a bad name, supporting the rights of a criminal who was shot while going for a weapon. Romans 13.1 Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Al says, I also hope that law enforcement comes to your headquarters and seizes everything there and places you under arrest as well. You should be trying to preach the word of God. Tell them to go back home and quit this nonsense. They are causing civil unrest and destruction. You are no better than a terrorist who should be placed under arrest or told to get out of this country. Thanks, Al. Anonymous says, supporting domestic terrorists is a treason. Treason deserves capital punishment. You are not Christ-centered. You are politically motivated. Trump 2020! Mark says, If there was a church like this in every city, American Christianity would be dead in 50 years. Amen, Mark. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. I hope you've been enjoying this hate mail series as much as I have. It's been a real gift to unpack all of this with with all of you as a community, not just to let these things fester in our inbox, but to bring it out into the light and try and make sense of it. Because we know that comments like Anonymous, who have told us that we have committed a treason by giving out water and snacks, that those kinds of comments actually don't come out of nowhere. 
that they come out of a shared culture that we live in, that these are particular expressions of sicknesses and sins that we share together. And so we unpack these things and we understand what is this wound in our culture that is expressing itself in this particular hateful way in this moment as we do our justice work, as we are called by our faith. One of the things that's really notable to me is that it's not just secular Americans who are sending us this hate mail. It's people who deeply identify as Christians. And in fact, the idea that we are a church doing this and acting um, on behalf of uh, social justice efforts and in concert with the Movement for Black Lives, that we're doing that as a church is what's particularly offensive to them. This series was inspired by Cindy, who you heard from today. She hit me up in my own DMs, and honestly, not a lot of people like found their way all the way to my personal page and hit me up directly. I had a lot of folks come through you know, our, our website contact form and our Facebook page general inbox, but Cindy really went the extra mile to find me and to talk to me directly about it. She reached out and she was angry. She was really angry that our church could be supporting protesters at this time and in this moment. And she said some really dismissive and offensive things about Jacob Blake. I asked her um, if she thought that Jesus approved of the fact that Jacob was shot in the back seven times in front of his young children. And she said... I believe that if he had obeyed when they told him to stop, he would not have been shot. And obeying is what Jesus teaches for the word and for the law, unless it goes against his word. And that really struck me. Cindy and I talked for a while longer, and I was unable to uh, bring her to the side of the angels on this issue. But uh, it was really enlightening for me to hear Cindy with her really firm conviction that the core of the gospel is obedience to the law. That struck me as deeply ironic since her savior was executed by the law. Uh, Jesus was one of the most public victims of state-sanctioned execution and violence. And so I wondered where that disconnect happened for her, how she got so deeply confused about who our obedience is towards and what our relationship is to earthly laws. She believes that our faith should make us good and particularly compliant American citizens. So why is American citizenship so bound up with faith? I was really interested in Cindy. I know that she's one of many Cindys in the world, and we've been hearing from a lot of them lately, but I wanted to know what her deal was. And so I went to her personal profile I was not surprised, but deeply heartbroken to see her cover photo. A picture of an American flag with the light shining through just so, so that a cross was embedded in the middle of it. This image pains my soul. The binding together, the fusing together of the cross, which is sacrifice, and power under, and Christ-centered resistance to empire. The fusing of that with American imperial flag idolatry. It hurts me. 
it hurts. And I know that I am relatively alone in this in this country, that many people don't see anything wrong with that and in fact celebrate this kind of imagery. Hold it up as this epitome of the core values that drive us to be upright citizens, one nation under God. Which brings me actually to our, I believe, cultural worship of the flag. The flag itself is really bound up in our faith and our national identity. And we learn this as children. How many of you started every school day, or at least several school days throughout your year, with your hand over your heart, pledging allegiance to this flag? The Pledge of Allegiance is uh, an artifact of our national history, and it's been around for almost 150 years at this point. If you haven't said it in a while, I will remind you, the words are, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. There are many pain points in that pledge for me, not the least of which is that the Republic has done a very poor job of giving liberty and justice to all. But it's also the assumption that it is the Republic that can do that, and that it does so under God, as though God has this happy gaze looking down saying, good on you, America, and that everyone needs to fall in line under the American concept headed, symbolized by this flag. This mention of God is meant to evoke in us our deepest senses of loyalty, of duty, of honor, that we pledge our fealty, not to God, but to the nation under God's watchful eye. And there's a reason that we start doing it in childhood. The original Pledge of Allegiance was written by Captain George T. Balk. I'm going to call him Captain George. Captain George's explicit goal was to indoctrinate children, especially immigrant children, with a kind of American patriotism that would ward off any, any nagging thoughts of critique of the U.S. government. And, and indeed, he, he dedicated himself to this effort. He worked with the government and with private institutions to make sure that there were flags in every classroom and every school. This wasn't standard until Captain George came along. And he actually wrote something else. His original Pledge of Allegiance went like this. We give our heads and our hearts to God and our country, one country, one language, one flag. That bit about language is particularly telling. You see, immigrant children would have had other languages than the one that they were made to speak this pledge in. And it was intended to erase those languages, to collapse them, to say there is only one true language, there is only one true flag, there is only one true God, and that one true God seems to really like this one true country. Captain George was an evangelist for America, but he wrapped all of that into faith language, God language, and because of the prominence of it in the United States, Christianity was deeply embedded in there. 
When I was a kid, I found this deeply creepy. I didn't know any of the history. I didn't know anything about Captain George, but I did know church. And I was taught how to pray. And so I had prayed with my family over dinner, with my community in church on Sundays. And when I got to school and I was told that I would stand with respect and to put my hand over my heart and to pledge allegiance to a piece of fabric, I got really confused. I didn't like it. It sounded like a prayer. It sounded creepy. I shouldn't be saying any of those things to anyone but God. Luckily, I was born in a time where I couldn't be compelled any longer to say the pledge, but that has not always been the case in this country. There was a time when the Supreme Court ruled that even those people, those religious people who felt that praying to a flag, excuse me, pledging to a flag was idolatrous, could be compelled to do so. That Supreme Court decision was reversed in 1943, finally. And since then, it has been technically optional. Try telling that to my sophomore year Spanish teacher. It did not go over well. But even with it being technically optional, these are the, this is one microcosm of this broader cultural um, indoctrination towards American patriotism that has been woven together with the language of faith and spirituality, that has been fused with the identity of Christianity, so that we have a very particular concept in mind when we talk about a good, God-fearing American. Where that hasn't been present in schools, it's been present in our pop culture. I'm going to say some words, and I'm going to guess pretty soon you'll be able to repeat them along with me. I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died who gave that right to me. And I'll gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today, because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Now, it might be easy for us to say, oh, God bless, that's such a broad category. God bless the USA. Yeah, it's, it's a song we all know. It's a song that's ubiquitous in our culture, but it's not particularly religious, is it? Except that you'll find that, among others, on lists like Make Worship Patriotic Again, the top 10 songs for 4th of July services published on Christianity Today in 2018. Also on that list is a song literally called Make America Great Again, written by First Baptist Church in Dallas. They have a CCLI copyright on it, which means that it is in the same category as when we see, sing Be Thou My Vision or Oceans. It is considered a worship song. And I'm going to read you the lyrics. Americans from every corner of this blessed land, come together with one voice, help us take a stand, following the vision to make her proud and grand and make America great again, make America great again. Somehow we've been able to eliminate God entirely from that concept, and yet it is a worship song, a worship song produced by a church. I'm going to switch gears for a second and give you a little history lesson. There was this thing called the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is Jesus' context uh, for doing ministry, but also for, for the landscape of the world at the time. 
The United States have been has been called the modern Roman Empire more than once. And though there are certainly differences, there are enough similarities that we should be paying very, very close attention to what the Roman Empire was like, what the American Empire is like, what Jesus had to say to the Roman Empire, and what Jesus has subsequently to say to us. John Dominic Crossan, who is um, one of my favorite um, New Testament scholars, he, he wrote about the Roman Empire, and he was referencing scholars who only do um, Roman history research. He said something that really caught my attention. He said, what Rome acquired, Rome kept. That was a new concept at the time. Uh, they call Rome the first territorial empire, which means that previously any imperial forces would have like a military and they would take, they would conquer new lands by military might, but they were held by military might. And so, you know, anytime anybody had enough physical power to, to push off, you know, that empire, they, they would, Territory would, would kind of go back and forth and back and forth a lot. You actually see this in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures a lot, because Israel is like free, and then it's under Assyria, and then it's under Babylon, and it's, it's a mess. And all of those are literal wars being waged all the time. It has everything to do with military power. But when John Dominic Crossan says that what Rome acquired, Rome kept, what he means is that there wasn't this back and forth that once Rome won, you were part of Rome for good. So the question is how? What made them so different? How were they able to do that for the first time in history? There were four elements of Roman power that secured the Roman Empire. The first, of course, was military. We still haven't done away with that. The second was economic. Rome integrated new territories into their economic system, and then you were literally bought into the system and had a really difficult time extracting yourself. The third was political. They were really adept at bringing local political forces into and integrating them into the empire. That's why sometimes here we'll talk about how um, Jewish leadership in Jesus's day, which was like partly religious and partly political, Sometimes those leaders got co-opted into the Roman system and became sort of middle management. That's that political power that they've been co-opted into. But the fourth is really notable. So far we've got military, economic, political, and now we have ideological. The Roman Empire had an enormously successful ideological game. Some people will call it emperor cult worship, but Crossan refuses to do so. He says that that implies that it, we shouldn't take it seriously or that it was like a niche kind of thing. He says rather, Roman imperial theology was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. And he says it wasn't like a top-down thing where the Roman emperor was like, I am God, peons. And the peons were like, yeah, okay, right, dude thinks he's God. It was actually really widely accepted at every level of society. People were deeply bought into Roman imperial theology, which literally at the time said that Caesar was God. Caesar was called lots of things like the son of man and the prince of peace and other things that you might, might ring a bell for you. So when Jesus comes in and comes on the scene and says, I am the son of man, I am the son of God, I am the prince of peace, 
It is a direct threat to the Roman Empire. And we've talked about that before here, but I really want to break it down by saying that this is an explicit threat on the ideological hold that the Roman Empire has on its territory. Crossan notes that Jesus fought exclusively on ideological grounds and that Jesus was not the only person publicly executed by the state of Rome for opposing them exclusively on ideological grounds. That anyone who came along and undermined the Roman imperial theology was a huge threat to the empire because the empire needed everyone from the top to the middle to the bottom to believe, to believe in the core of their being that the spiritual truth of the world was held in the hands of the emperor. They needed to believe that they were part of the Pax Romana, the plan for the world that was Rome, that Rome was going to be, bring peace to everyone as long as everyone just got on board with Rome and realized that Rome had the right way of being. Does any of this sound familiar? Like creepily, terrifyingly familiar? There is a reason that the system pushes back on us when we say no. When we say, if Jesus is Lord, that means every Caesar is not. When we say, if the true authority of God comes in the form of a brown-skinned Palestinian Jewish peasant, then we will not worship capital. We will not worship the president. We will not worship your flag. Of course that is threatening. Of course that shakes patriots to the bone especially those who feel that the only way to be faithful to God is to be faithful to country, God and country, God and country, God and country. And now we come along saying, no, 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 God. And also country, kind of a bummer. Country, doing it wrong a lot. Country, not actually God. It's confusing, it's disorienting, and it is directly undermining the project of American imperialism as it was designed to do. Jesus was giving us the tools, giving us the language, giving us the hope to say that Roman imperial theology is wrong and it can be broken. That we can find God separated from the military powers that come to haunt, uh, haunt and hunt us. That we can find God separate from the economic powers that keep us enslaved to wage labor. That we can find God apart from political machines that are promising us salvation that we know they have no intention of delivering. But we have to extract our God, our Jesus, our Savior from the mechanisms of empire that murdered him. Jesus' power is a different kind of power. In the scriptures today, we're called to meditate on the difference between power over, as the unbelievers have, and the different kind of power exemplified by Jesus in his ministry, on the cross, and in his resurrection. These scriptures tell us that the way of the world is different than the way of the kingdom, and that in the way of the world, their glory, old glory, is their shame. The original context for these comments from Jesus about power over and the unbelievers having power that dominates them is because Jesus' followers were so bought into casual hierarchy that they were like, so Jesus, like, 
you know, when this is all done or whatever, we all get our like seats. Like who's gonna, who are you gonna put right next to you? Who's gonna be at your right hand? Who's gonna be at your left? It's probably me, right? I'm like pretty dope. And Jesus was like, you guys don't get this at all. Like that's, that's this thing, that's earth. That's not the kingdom. Like this power over thing, you don't get to keep that. That's not what we're here for. And in fact, that hierarchy is sin and wounding and shame. This jockeying for position, it's evil. And you can hear where Jesus is going with this, right? Can you hear him saying, make America great again is a shameful statement. America is number one is an evil thing to proclaim. Pride in one's country based on false borders that place one's own national identity above another so that we can dominate and rule the world, that's mad scientist stuff. That's not Christianity of Jesus stuff. Their glory is their shame, says the scriptures. And where does our hope come from? In what can we boast? Our citizenship is not of this world. We are not called to be good American citizens. We are called to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. There's a scripture that people like to throw out a lot. And I'm not going to lie to you. I actually don't have time to fully unpack it today. It's Romans 13. One of the people who we quoted today references it. And in Romans 13, there's a whole section saying, basically, like, be subject to all the earthly authorities because all the earthly authorities got their authority from God. And God put everything in its right order. So, like, get in line. The reason that I can't fully explain this is because it's deeply complicated. And someday we might have a really fun Bible study about this. But I wanted to at least give you a little bit of hope. There's a lot of nonsense that made it into the Bible, but this actually might not be nonsense. And there's a lot of stuff we have to sift through to understand, like, is this really consistent with the message of Jesus? How did it end up in here? These parts of the Bible that often speak against one another in these really explicit ways, how do we make sense? So I want to just remind everyone that the Bible is a super complicated document. But what's happening here is probably not sinfulness edging its way into this literature. It's probably our own context making us unavailable to the meaning and intention of Paul's words. Because the letter to the church in Rome, Romans, is a highly anti-empire document. It is a radical, radical piece of writing. So much so that some people have tried to make sense, some scholars have tried to make sense of this little bit that's like authority comes from God, so honor authority and stay in line. Some people have tried to make sense of it by saying, Paul's just straight up being ironic. Like, it's so unbelievable that this would be in there in this way, in these words, that he must be joking. Because it just doesn't fit with the rest of Paul, much less the rest of Jesus. But I think the simplest understanding of it is that Paul means what he says and that he's not making a joke, but that he's talking about it as a way to not get killed unnecessarily. And the reason I say unnecessarily is because Paul absolutely got himself killed. 
Jesus got himself killed. Most of the early church got themselves killed, all by the state, mind you. So they were being executed for being really bad citizens over and over and over again. And what Paul seems to be saying here, according to my understanding, is, well, don't get executed for something petty. We've got bigger things to worry about. If you want to look more into this, I highly recommend a book called The Arrogance of Nations. This is not a helpful cover. Um, by, by Neil Elliott. And Elliott is such a defender of the radical nature of this letter that he opens up in his introduction with a bit of a challenge to us. He says, if we do not immediately hear the counter-imperial aspects of Paul's letter, perhaps it is because we are predisposed by the constructed, privatized, and domesticated contexts in which Paul's letters are most usually read. Eliot is saying, if we think that Paul is telling us to just fall in line, that's actually on us. That's a reflection of how deeply embedded we are in American imperial Christianity. And that a close reading of this text sees something entirely different. Getting back to that understanding that Paul is saying, don't get executed for something petty, we have the example of the modern day saint and martyr, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a Christian in Europe during the rise of Hitler. He was a staunch anti-fascist, anti-Nazi guy. I mean, he was a, he was a prophet um, and was very publicly committed to justice from, from his own discipleship and faith. And he was in a cafe when it was announced that France had surrendered to the Nazis. And the entire cafe stood up and raised their arms in a Nazi salute. And he did also. And reportedly a friend was like, what, what are you doing? Because he, you know, Bonhoeffer had been very publicly anti-Nazi, anti-salute, anti-everything. And reportedly, Bonhoeffer said to his friend, raise your arm, are you crazy? We shall have to run risks for very different things now, but not for that salute. It was just five years later when Bonhoeffer was executed in Germany after being arrested for conspiring to rescue Jews. But Bonhoeffer's point here was get arrested and executed for conspiring to rescue Jewish people. Don't get arrested and executed for failing to put your arm up. It's not that he was unwilling to break the law, to do the work of God, even unto death. But it was a sort of pick your battles power analysis to say, find the ways to really fight back. That is my understanding of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 13. Don't get killed for the wrong reasons. We can say no still to saying the pledge. We still have the right to kneel during the national anthem. And while we have those rights, while our life doesn't depend on compliance, we should exercise those rights. Once our government threatens to kill us over it, comply with those things and save your life and your battle and perhaps your death for something else. 
We have to be prepared at all times to remember our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and the ways in which our citizenship of this country actually may ask us to commit treason against our citizenship in heaven. Which empire are you loyal to? The empire of America or the anti-empire of Jesus? Do we submit to power over? Do we celebrate it? Do we honor it with flags and with singing from our pulpits? Do we bind our faith to it as though our flag is our true God? Or do we remember who we are, where we come from, where we are going? That the anti-empire of the kingdom of God is a wholly different place where power is servanthood, where military might is shameful, where greed is recognized to only bring emptiness, and where we celebrate that all are actually made in the image of God and that no human empire or borders or national identity actually adds any value to anyone's worth. Over the last few years, we've seen a really troubling rise, not just in patriotism, but in nationalism and edges towards fascism and tyranny. Timothy Snyder, a professor at Yale, wrote a book called 20 Lessons on Fighting Tyranny at Home. His first rule, do not obey in advance. He writes, most of the power of authoritarianism is freely given. In times like these, individuals think ahead about what a more repressive government will want and then offer themselves without being asked. A citizen who adapts in this way is teaching power what it can do. When we have people in our inboxes telling us that it is illegal for us to give out water and snacks, we need to fight all the harder for our right to give out humanitarian aid, which is not against the law. But when people think that it is or that it should be, and ask us to obey in advance, lest we start getting harassed by law enforcement or more, we need to be very careful when fellow Christians come to us and tell us that the heart of the gospel is to obey the law, we need to be heartbroken and we need to be vocal. Jesus was executed publicly by the state for fighting back on ideological grounds against the worship of empire. That's our savior, that's our God. And if we are to follow him, we must disentangle our faith from the nationalism that has it in a chokehold. My favorite comment, perhaps of this whole series, but certainly of today, is from Mark. Mark wrote, if there was a church like this in every city, American Christianity would be dead in 50 years. Now, I'm not sure what he means by American Christianity, but if Mark is talking about American imperial theology, then Mark, I gotta say, if only, I hope, I hope we are being that faithful of a witness. Imperial religion should die. 
And if we can do that in the next 50 years, Yahtzee, we might have gotten our faith back as a community, as a culture. We might have disentangled it from the sin and evil of nationalism. We might have rediscovered the heart of the gospel of anti-empire instead of intertwining our cross and our flag. Our faith will flourish when we remember that yes, we are citizens of the United States of America here, if you are. But first and foremost, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that that is the only citizenship that truly matters. And if you don't have your papers here, you have your papers in heaven. And if you do have your papers here, you have your papers in heaven. And in fact, heaven, of course, is a place where no one needs papers because no one has to prove their worth or their belonging or their power, that all are served by the God who comes beneath, the God who offers support and kindness, the God who looks at old glory and says, that glory is their shame and I say it with tears. We can have a different kind of faith. We can say no to the Pledge of Allegiance. We can kneel during the national anthem. We can demand that our country be better and do better without succumbing to these threats that if we don't like it, we should just leave. And in fact, calling for change and remembering the anti-empire of the kingdom of heaven and its possibilities, that is the heart of our faith. And never to think that we have arrived because we get to drape ourselves in an American flag. Will you pray with me? God of all creation, we praise you for loving each and every one of us in every context, in every time, of every national origin and every geography. God, we know that your heart breaks over the sin of American nationalism and the worship and idolatry of the American flag. May our hearts break with you. May we remember to whom we really belong. God, may we remember that we belong to each other in you and in your love. May we remember that we belong to an anti-empire where power is not domination, but power is the flourishing of all people through support and servanthood as you have modeled for us. Amen.